but it's great to be here. I'd like to say something about pioneers and mission, but what I really want to focus on is this. But let me say something about pioneers by defining a term. A term that we sung a lot about this morning. I think at least in three of the songs we sang, this phrase was there in one form or another, something about the glory of God. We sang about the glory. One of the songs said, may your glory be over all the earth. And so what you have to ask yourself immediately is, well, what is the glory of God? We keep singing about it. What is this thing called the glory of God? The answer is this. The glory of God is anything that makes God seem. The glory of God is anything that makes God seem. It's what we read in Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day out of speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where his voice is not heard. The glory of God is anything that makes God seem. In other words, if you were to go out into the outback of Australia or into the little tiny country of the Gambia in West Africa where my wife and I were serving in mission in a place with no electricity, so there's no light pollution. You go on a very clear night. There's no clouds. There's no industry. And all you can do is look up at the stars and as you begin to count them, get dizzy. So many, you look up and say, wow, the infinity of God. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. So you find um, you're on a flat plateau somewhere and you come across a mountain range in the middle of nowhere. You say, wow, the power of God. He made that. That is the glory of God. You see a brand new baby that's born and you count the fingers and the toes and you say, wow, the detail of God. He made this little life form. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. You look at this book and you read it from cover to cover and you say, wow, the plan of God. God has a plan for people, a plan for the nations. You say, wow, the plan of God. That is the glory of God. You look at the cross and you see the Lord Jesus there and you say, wow, the love of God, that Christ would die for me. That is the glory of God. You looked in the mirror this morning and said, my goodness, the grace of God that he would bother with me. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. And the ministry of pioneers is about making God seen more clearly through the profound message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in places of the world where there are very, very few churches. Uh, Hardly any Christian witness. And there are several thousand people groups of the world. Group of people with their own language and culture and worldview and way of life that have no access to the gospel apart from people coming to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And that's all we're about. Making God seen through the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the message of the cross. And our particular responsibility, we're only one organisation, there are lots of them, praise the Lord. Our particular responsibility is to make Christ seen in places where very few others are doing the same thing. So you won't believe this statistic, but I'll give it to you anyway. For every one, for every 20,000 of us, born again, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, 20,000 Christians, for every 20,000 of us, only one will take the gospel to an unreached people group of the world. So for some reason... 19,999 feel called to do something else. And some of those something else things are good things. But only one will take the gospel to a place where there's no healthy church. And one of my responsibilities as a servant leader of a mission organisation is to help correct that terrible statistical and political and financial barriers to take the gospel of Jesus to other places of the world. So we've got about 220 Aussie adults serving as missionaries. They're people just like us, flesh and blood, people who know what it is to have their sins forgiven, ordinary people with an extraordinary God who are serving long term in places like countries that end in Stan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, China, Europe, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Ireland, Southeast Asia, you name it, Latin America. People who love Christ, who are making him known in some pockets of the world where there are very few believers. And I guess we're a part of an international movement with around 3,000 members and so we're thanking God for what he's doing right across the world. What I'd like to do this morning is share with you from a text you know well. Now, that's always a dangerous thing to do because the risk I run this morning is that you say, oh, I already know this text, therefore I'll switch off. And, uh, and you'll be looking at me smiling anyway, uh, but you'll know that on the inside you're in your happy place and, um, and you're like just, you know, switched off because you know this text. But I want to encourage you this morning to hang in there as we read the living word of God and see what God has to say to us. Because this particular text is all about mission. And we have a God who is a missionary God who sent his missionary son to form a missionary church full of missionary people to take the message of Christ to peoples who are yet to hear. So, uh, if you have your Bible, would you like to turn to Luke chapter 10? And we'll start at verse 25. And as soon as I say Luke 10 verse 25, some of you will know the text and others of you, as soon as you turn to the text, will say, oh yeah, I know that text really, really well. Luke chapter 10. I better make a quick disclaimer before I read this. Um, <clears throat> years ago, I was finishing up at Bible College. My wife and I had been in the Gambia in West Africa and I was at Bible College and I was finishing up at Bible College and towards the end of my three years, I came from a little college in Adelaide. Um, the Ambrosino family have some 
roots in Adelaide and so do we. And towards the end of my three years studying God's Word, I was unsure about what to do next. Do I become a missionary and go back to Africa? That was the deepest longing of my heart and in some ways still is. Or do I become a pastor of a church with a missionary focus? Um, Missionary work, pastoral ministry. Missionary work, pastoral ministry. And I wasn't sure which one to do. And it's awkward because I was already well into my 30s and um, thinking, my goodness, what shall I do? And here I am finishing my studies and I don't even know what to do next. We come from a pretty large Baptist church in Adelaide and I turned to my eldest daughter, Sarah, who's about to get married to James. But back then she was only four years old. And I turned to Sarah right during the sermon. And um, I said, Sarah, do you think Daddy should become a pastor like Mr. Dunn? Mr. Dunn was preaching. His name's Ian, and he was preaching. And it's a little embarrassing that a grown adult man would ask his four-year-old what he should do with the rest of his life, but um, I did anyway, and she thought about it for a little while, and then she looked up at me and she said, No, Dad, you're not that good. Oh, rascal. And I thought, out of the mouths of babes. So, there you go. So, I didn't become pastor of ministry and I didn't actually go into mission work to return somewhere in the world, but ended up helping others think about mission and think about the part we have to play in God's redemptive plan for people. So, am I, Sarah's probably right. Oh, I'm not that good, but I'm going to share with you from a text that is very, very good. Why? Because it's the Word of God. So, you'll know the story, of course, and you'll all know it because it's kind of like headed the parable of the Good Samaritan. It goes like this. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when they saw the man, he passed by, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, when he came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. 
Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What I'd like for us to do this morning as we think about mission is have a look at this passage under three headings. The setting, the story and the sequel. The setting, the story and the sequel. First the setting, verse 25, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this lawyer is not like a solicitor today. He was an expert in the law of Moses. He was an expert in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's his, that's his field. That's his arena. This is the stuff he knows well. He's an expert in the law of Moses. And he hears that there's a new rabbi in town, a new teacher, who's going around speaking wonderful words and performing incredible works. And this lawyer thinks to himself, I wonder, does Jesus really know his stuff? And so he comes to Jesus with questions to test him. And the first question he asks is this, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you immediately notice a fallacy in the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And you know, as well as I do, that we can never accumulate enough good works to impress God. We can't do anything that will help us find favour with God. God is perfect and He is immutable. He cannot be mutated. In other words, I am the Lord and I do not change, He says. And I am a sinner. And my sin is deeply offensive to His holiness and there's nothing I can do about who God is and about who I am. All have sinned, past tense, and fall short, continuous present tense, present continuous tense, of the glory of God. I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. This lawyer, he's probably looking for some magnanimous deed that he can perform. If he can just do that one thing, whatever it is, Lord, you tell me what it is and I'll do it. If that gets me eternal life, Lord, what is this great thing I have to do? That's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus shows himself to be the master teacher. What do all the really good teachers do when the student asks the question? 
Well, what do you think? The teacher says, well, what do you think? Teacher, I don't understand this. What's the answer to this question? And the teacher says, well, you have a crack at it. What do you think the answer is? I used to hate that when I was a kid at school because I'm like, well, I wouldn't have asked the question if I knew the answer. You give me the answer. But the really good teachers make you think. Have a go. What do you think the answer is? Jesus says, you're the lawyer. You're the expert. This is your field of expertise. What's your solution to the problem? What's your answer to your very own question? How do you read it? What's written in the law? And this lawyer is brilliant. You see his answer? Verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. This lawyer says there are two primary laws in the Old Testament. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love God totally. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 is preceded immediately by Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Do you know what Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says? It's the creed of all Judaism. You can go into any synagogue, on any Sabbath, anywhere in the world and you will hear this verse resounded. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Verse 5 is the practical application of that great truth. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Verse 5 is, You shall love that Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. In other words, verse 5 is the practical application of verse 4. If there is only one God, and there is, that God deserves your unadulterated, complete allegiance. If there is only one God, you'll love that God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. And then the lawyer quotes Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now the reason I say his answer is brilliant is because this lawyer takes all the laws of the Old Testament, there are more than 600 of them, and distills them into two simple commands. Love God totally, love your neighbour as you love yourself and anyone who can do that knows his stuff. This guy isn't just your regular guy walking down the street. This guy is an expert in the law of Moses and he's brilliant. E equals MC squared. That's Albert Einstein. It's genius. Energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light. It's brilliant. Albert Einstein tells us that the, our whole nuclear system is built on this tiny little premise, this simple little equation, E equals mc squared. All the laws of the universe rest here, he says, shows that he's brilliant and it's exactly what this lawyer does. 
he says, of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, there are two primary commands. Love God totally and love your neighbour as yourself. And we know it's a brilliant answer because look what the Lord Jesus says, verse 28, you have answered correctly. That's all you have to do, Jesus says. Do this and you'll live. How hard can it be? Love God totally and love your neighbour as you love yourself. Jesus says that's all you have to do. Do this and you will live. Now, that could have been the end of the discourse. The man could have walked away and that would have been the end of it. But this man, back then, like every thinking person would today, is smitten to the core with conviction because nobody loves God totally and nobody consistently loves his neighbour as he loves himself. And so, just like a lawyer today, he says, well, let's define the terms. What are we talking about here? And so, he says, "Uh, who is my neighbour? Now, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say anything about the first command. Why? Well, because anyone can say that of God totally and who are you to argue with them? You don't know what's going on in someone's heart and mind. God does. You don't precisely know. And so, he doesn't bother with the first command. But as soon as you say, love your neighbour as you love yourself, you have to ask the question, well, who's my neighbour? Because if my neighbour is a member of my family, well, I love them like I love myself. Most of the time. If my neighbour is a dear friend, well, I love them like I love myself. Occasionally. If my neighbour is a stranger, I might give my life for them. If my neighbour's a noble person, it's possible that in a moment of heroism I would take a bullet to protect that noble person. But if my neighbour is someone I despise or my enemy, well, forget it. By definition, I don't love them like I love myself. And so the question has to be asked, who is my neighbour? And that's the setting. And to answer that very important question, Jesus tells the story that we've come to know as the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that you know well. It says there in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead on the side of the road. Um, Do you know that Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level and Jericho is 800 feet below sea level? It's a very, very interesting journey. It's about a 25 kilometre trip. It's undulating at first The last bit is a precipitous drop that's made up of limestone that weathers 
and over time caves are formed, great places for people with ill intent to hide. This journey, this 2,500 feet high down to 800 feet low is a part of the Rift Valley. It's a fault that runs all the way from Beirut in Lebanon, all the way down through the north of Galilee, all the way down through the country right in to the heart of Africa. In fact, when you're standing at the Dead Sea, you are standing at the lowest spot you can be on planet Earth. It's the deepest fault in the world. And here comes a man travelling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he falls into the hands of evil people. They leave him a bloodied mess, naked, how embarrassing, on the side of the road. They take everything he has and they leave him there to die. Well, verse 31 says, the first person to come onto the scene is a priest. And we read that he sees the situation and he passes by on the other side. Now, we can't say dogmatically why he chooses to pass by on the other side, but the direction in which he's travelling gives us a clue. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, not up the road, going down the same road, down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Contrary to what most of us understand, the majority of the priests in those days didn't live, didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in outlying towns. You see, King David, a thousand years earlier, had divided the priests up into 24 choruses, 24 groups. And guess what their responsibility was? Well, you know what David assigned them to do? To travel from their hometown, Jericho was one of their favourite towns, to travel from their hometown twice a year for one week at a time to perform their responsibilities in the temple. Well, that's not a bad job. I wouldn't mind doing that. Live in Jericho and twice a year travel to Jerusalem for one week each time and perform your responsibilities in God's temple, the place where God chose to presence himself on planet earth in those days. And then they would go home. What a job. Well, here comes a priest travelling down the same road and he sees this man who's been beaten. He's a mess. He passes by on the other side. Imagine if he'd gone to him. Like imagine for a minute if he'd left the temple of God and he'd gone to that man and tended to his needs and, and, and nursed him and protected him and, and then saw him on his way and then went back to Jericho. Phew, I'm home. And somebody at the gates of Jericho says, Rabbi, I haven't seen you for a while. Where have you been? Well, I've been in Jerusalem. Really? What were you doing there? I served in the temple. Wow. You were in the temple? Yeah. I was in the temple and you get to do it twice a year and do you know what? It is the holiest place you can be on planet Earth. It was incredible. Tell me about it. Rabbi, well, I can hardly put it into words but I can tell you right now that being in that place 
is like nothing else you will ever experience. Being in that place is the most spiritual experience a person can have in those days and uh, my goodness, it was a privilege. Rabbi, let me shake your hand and welcome home. Whoa, don't touch me, the rabbi would have to say. What do you mean, don't touch you? You're so holy now, we can't even shake hands? No, 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 you don't understand. After I left the temple, I found this man on the side of the road and he'd been beaten, there was blood. It was very, it was awful. And um, I can't shake your hand now because I'm defiled. What? You went to the temple of God and you came home unclean? He would be the laughing stock of Jericho. We can't say for sure why the priest passed by on the other side, but he probably saw ceremonial defilement. And so, instead of going to the man, he passes by on the other side. Well, that brings on to the scene the Levite in verse 32. And he came to the place and saw him. He passed by on the other side. And we have no idea why. We can speculate. But the text doesn't tell us why. Chances are, he said, oh my goodness. Look what they've done to him. And if they did that to him, they might do it to me. And maybe he saw danger. Wow, they could be watching me now. This is a really dangerous part of the journey. If they did that to him, I'm in trouble too, I'm out of here and he gets on his way. Maybe he saw danger. Maybe he saw a bother. If I stop and help this man, it's going to cost me something. Maybe he saw an expense. I already have an agenda. I already have things to do. You should see my calendar. I am maxed out. If I stop and help this guy, where will it end? I'm not going to bother. Maybe he saw danger. Maybe he saw a bother. Maybe he saw an expense. Whatever he saw, he said, I'm not stopping to help this man. And he passes by on the other side. And that brings us to verses 33 to 35 when the Samaritan comes onto the scene. And you realise, of course, that the Samaritans and the Jews despised each other. I mean, they really hated each other. Do you know what the Jews hated about the Samaritans? They weren't full-blooded Jews. I don't really understand what that feels like on a personal level, but my wife does. South African girl. She's not black African. She's not white African. She's this mixed colour thing. She had more privileges than them during the apartheid years and less privileges than them during the apartheid years and it's a strange circumstance to be a coloured person, especially in the world of apartheid or as Sean was telling us about the caste system of India, to be given a particular status. And the Jews hated the Samaritans because they weren't full-blooded Jews. But do you know what really ticked them off? The Samaritans had their own temple in Shechem. They had their own Bible. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had their own priests. And the Jews despised the Samaritans for that and the feelings were reciprocated. And here comes 
a despised Samaritan on Jewish territory sees this man beaten and bloodied and left to die and instead of passing by on the other side he goes to him touches him says he gets some wine and pours them on his cups why would he do that? because wine would have some antiseptic value says that he takes some oil and, and massages them into his bruises because that would be soothing takes some bandages and binds up his wounds where would he get the bandages from? I don't think they carried a first aid kit in the back of the donkey in those days. The man's naked. Then we have to assume that he takes his own clothes and somehow makes bandages out of them for a complete stranger. As if that wasn't enough. He picks him up and puts him on his donkey and he lets this stranger ride while he walks, takes him to an inn nurses him the whole night. Don't know if any any nurses here this morning. Night duty is so tiring. Especially when you've been on a long journey during the day and he cares for the guy during the night. Goes to the innkeeper in the morning and says, here's two denarii. Denarius was about a day's wage. So here's two days wages. They should cover the costs and more and by the way when I come back if it costs even more than that just let me know and I'll pay the bill would you give two days wages for a complete stranger this guy does and promises more if it's needed that's the story so you get the setting the story and that brings us to the sequel here's the sequel verse 36 Jesus says which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? You say, wait a minute, Jesus, you changed the question. That wasn't the question the lawyer asked. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbour? And we would say, well, your neighbour was that poor guy. There's your neighbour right there, in plain sight, right in front of your eyes. Your neighbour is the one who got beaten up. But Jesus says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbour to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? And you can tell that this lawyer hates the Samaritans. He can't even frame the word and spit it out of his mouth. He says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, there are many lessons we can learn from this wonderful, wonderful text. I would like to highlight three for you. Three lessons that we can take home and um, allow them to shape our lives in the cause of mission. Here's the first lesson. It's not enough to see a need. It's not enough to see a need. Idon, idon, idon. It's the Greek word. It's the original language of this particular part of God's book. It means he saw him, he saw him, 
he saw him. The text reads, reads, the priest saw him and passed by on the other side. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side. The Samaritan saw him and went to him. It's not enough to see a need. All three saw the same need. And only did one of them did something positive about what he saw. I marvel at the hardness of my own heart. Just by virtue of living in this amazing country in which we live, like you, I am bombarded with requests for more. People want money. You get it on the internet, you get it via text message, you get it on the telly, you get it in the letterbox. You can hardly stop at a traffic light in the city anymore without some tin bin rattled in your ear. People are always asking for more. And then I add my particular role for the particular thing I'm doing right now with my life and I'm inundated with requests for time, money and stuff from all around the world. And I can't meet every need, emotionally or financially or physically. But quite frankly, I could do more than I do. I see a need and I pass by on the other side. There are close to 3,000 unreached people groups in the world. So people with their own language and world view and culture, the way of doing life as a community. They're unreached, which means they don't have any healthy church in their community. There are 3.5 billion Muslims, Buddhists and Hindus in the world and 86% of them do not personally know a follower of Jesus. There are 35 million slaves in the world. There are 20 million orphans in the world. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day. A billion people live on less than $1 a day. In the last hour, 115 children became prostitutes. Today, 63,000 people will die in places where there are no churches. So now we know the need. It's not enough to see a need. It's not enough to see a need. Here's the second lesson. What you do depends on what you see. It's not enough to see a need, but what you do depends on what you see. Why did the priest pass by on the other side? We probably saw ceremonial defilement. Why did the Levite pass by on the other side? He probably saw an expense or danger or a nuisance, a hassle. Why did the Samaritan stop and show mercy? Because he saw a neighbour. What you do always depends on what you see. Friends of mine serve with our organisation in a massive city in East Asia where it's illegal to publicly share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, worst case scenario they'll put the 
put the people you were witnessing to in jail for 20 years. You'll certainly be kicked out of the country, never to return. That's kind of harmless. But what they might do to others is quite profoundly horrific. Um, Friends of mine are in this city and they're walking down the street and it's a massive city. Buildings are everywhere. I mean, we're talking skyscraper city and they came across a vacant lot in the city where a group of men lived under cardboard. And these men performed the most menial tasks during the day and drank themselves silly at night to keep warm and forget their miserable lives. And my friends, an Aussie girl and an English guy said, what are we going to do with these guys? We can't just pass by on the other side on owner. And they took these men once a week to a particular restaurant and gave them a decent meal. They said, well, that's one way we can show the love of Jesus. It doesn't cost very much to shout someone a meal in that part of the world and yet it means a lot to these guys. And they did that week after week after week in a city where you can't publicly share Christ. And one night, the restaurant owner confronted them publicly in front of all the people in the restaurant and said, what do you think you're doing? Even we don't care about these guys and you're not even from here. What do you care? Why are you spending your money on complete strangers? And my friend from England took a deep breath and whispered a prayer and he said, let me tell you why we're shouting these men a decent meal once a week. The love of Christ compels us. And the owner said, what on earth does that mean? And they shared the gospel with this man publicly and that night, the restaurant owner and his staff on their knees gave their lives to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It's not, it's not rocket science. They just bought people a meal and earned the right to share the love of Jesus with them. They saw a neighbour in need. So it's not enough to see a need. What you do depends on what you see, but there's a more fundamental principle and it's the third lesson and it's this. What you see depends on what you are. It's not enough to see a need. What you do depends on what you see, but what you see depends on what you are. Because he was a neighbour, he saw a neighbour. Jesus said, which of these three proved to be a neighbour? The Samaritan. What you see depends on what you are. We even teach this principle to our little children. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a mouse under her chair. This very, very clever cat gets on a plane at uh, Tullamarine Airport and catches a uh, Qantas Emirates code share flight via Dubai to London. Lands at Heathrow. Guess what it does? Doesn't go on a cruise on the River Thames. Doesn't go to the august St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey or the Tower of London or Madame Tussauds or the London Eye. There's a lot of things you could do in London but guess where this clever cat's going? To see Queen is going to Buckingham Palace and it's one of those very unusual days when Buckingham Palace is open to cats and so this cat arrives at Buckingham Palace and guess what? The doors swing open and there's the red carpet and there in the throne room is the Queen 
in all her regalia. She's got a crown on her head and a golden scepter in hand. It's the queen. And what does the cat see? He sees a mouse under her chair. Now, why does it see a mouse? Because it's a cat. What you see depends on what you are. So, I'll finish with a question. What do you see when you see people? What do you see? See a Muslim? Buddhist? Drunk? Drug addict? Someone who's dirt poor? Someone who's filthy rich? Politician? What do you see when you see someone other? Because the answer to that question is a reflection of your own heart. What do you see? Someone to use? Someone to abuse? Someone to pass by on the other side? The answer to that question betrays who you are on the inside. Because what you see depends on what you are. There's a wonderful little verse in... 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and it's verse 16 and it's not very famous but it should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 is famous. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. We memorise that verse. Guess what the verse before says? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16. uh, Paul has been speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So from now on, we are only free to view people the way Jesus views people. We don't get to look at people the way the world looks at people anymore. We used to, he says. We even used to look at Jesus that way, Paul says. But from now on, We only see people through the eyes of Jesus. And how does the Lord Jesus view people? Worth dying for. That's how we got saved. And that's how we view people. Precious in the sight of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, would you drive this famous text and the truths therein deep into our hearts Why would we ask that? We ask it for the sake of your glory and we ask it for the sake of the eternal destinies of men and women and boys and girls everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.